We're going to go to 1 Peter for our Bible study this evening. 1 Peter chapter 2. Some people are really proud of me for coming up with three Ps. Like, I, I guess I don't do enough alliteration. They're like, wow, you must be a pastor now. You were able to alliterate something. But Peter's pivotal point. And when we talk about, when we talk about this passage uh, tonight, it is a, it's a very uh, dynamic and uh, important passage. And it's only two verses. So it can sometimes look and say, well, why are we going to focus on two verses? Well, one, because it's God's Word, and two, it's really pivotal to understanding uh, this book. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but there were certain subjects in high school and even in college that I despised. At the very top was English and language arts, and I, some of you are like, amen. Some of you probably just turned me off right away because you're English majors and, you know, everything revolves around that. I, when I look back to English and, and language arts, uh, I never was I well at doing anything with Grammarly stuff because I always did things backwards and said the wrong things, and I still do that, and, I, and I'm okay with that. But part of my struggle as I would be in English class and uh, reading is sometimes I mix up letters when I'm reading, and I read very slowly, so I really hated uh, reading. I despised it. Uh, and then I, I, started, I got this chip on my shoulder in high school, like, why do I really need to know what a noun is? verb is, what a direct object is, what an indirect object, what beneficial use in life is that ever going to have for me? And then to put it on top, the teachers would have you read Weathering Heights. Like, everybody in high school wants to read, read Weathering Heights. Or, you know, you have to read Shakespeare, and it's like, ah, I could care less. And I'm like, what benefit is any of this ever going to be in my life? And I got frustrated with English class, and I sort of blew it off all the time. And, uh, I just, I, I got to a point where I didn't want to do anything. And to make it all worse, then the teachers would ask you to write your perspective on that novel that you really didn't want to read and use proper grammar to write a paper for them, and then they would critique you anyway. And I was like, I just, I despised it. I was always like, let me watch a movie. Let me hang with my friends. You know, they make movies out of every book now, so let's just do it that way. It's so much easier. And maybe, maybe I'm the only one, maybe not. But, you know, God has a funny way of working things out sometimes because now I chuckle because I look at it and basically every week, what do I have to do? I have to write a paper. That's basically what this is, this message. I'm writing a paper after I've went through the grammar of a language and trying to figure out nouns, verbs, or direct objects. I'm like, okay, God's got a funny way of, of working that out. And every time that we preach, we have to come up with this, this proposition or a thesis statement that you always had to. And I always struggled with that in English class and writing a paper and coming up with that thesis statement. Well, verses 11 and 12 that is Peter's thesis statement to this book. It is the lens by which we can read the next part, the next body of this book. He pivots at this point. He's going to go from the, all the theology that we've been talking about in the first two chapters, and he's going to use it to pivot, and he's going to say these, these two verses are so pivotal to help us understand the next two chapters of the book. And so as, as Peter goes through that, he's going to say, here it is. Now, when we do that, we call it a proposition. This is going to be Peter's driving proposition for the next two chapters, found in verses 11 and 12. In our verses, it's two, in our Bible, it's two verses, but in, in the Greek, it's one long extended verse, again, uh, that he's driving, driving this point. And we come off of this perspective that we've just, we covered two weeks ago when we were talking about God is building a building. And we are that. And as God is building this spiritual community to declare out to our community, he's building us up. He told us in, in verse 9 that we are a chosen generation. We are his people. 
that we are a royal priesthood. There is a kingly dynamic to our, we represent and we serve the one true God, the glorious God, and he rivals, there's no God that rivals him. We talked about that we are a holy nation, that God has set apart our church, has set apart us to serve him, to be individuals who are valuable and we offer a valuable contribution to this, this body of believers. We are a peculiar people. As we talked about, that's literally, we are a people for his possession. We belong to him. He owns us. He gives us direction. He gives us value to our lives. And now it says in verse 10, you are a people of God. You weren't before. You weren't a people, but now we are the people of God. We didn't deserve God's grace. We did not deserve God's mercy. And yet in his love and his kindness, he demonstrated that to us because we did not deserve mercy. And yet we have obtained that mercy, and we rejoice in that. And then Peter flows right out of this dynamic of we are this body of people being built up together by God. We are part of his body that is strengthened to proclaim to our community, to proclaim to people the goodness and the greatness and the mercy of God, as we saw that we should, verse 9, that we should declare, show forth the praises of him who has called us out of darkness into his glorious or marvelous light. And then he, he flows off of that into verses 11 and 12. He's going to say, God has given us our identity. His mercy has granted that to us. This is who we are. And because of who we are, now God is going to say, here's the practical. Peter's going to say, based on all of this theology, let's start getting into the nitty-gritty practical of how to live, how to flesh this out, how to show this identity to the world so that when they do see us, they, they are able to identify this marvelous, this gloriousness, this grace of God. So Peter's laid this theological foundation. He has, he has said that we are God's house. We are God's building. And as we are being built up, we now have this, this house that is being established. Now, Peter's going to let us into the house. He's over the next few chapters going to show us the rooms of what this house looks like. He's going to enter us into the different dynamics of our, of our life as believers. But before entering into the house, we, we have to cross the threshold. And that's verses 11 and 12. It's sort of the entrance into this house that he's building and saying, this is what we as the body of Christ, as believers, as the building that Christ is building up, the spiritual, made of spiritual stones, this is how we're to live out our livelihood through Christ and in him. And so this doorway, there, there's a lot of cinematic doorways. I remember the first times. I, I love The Wizard of Oz, as I've talked about before, and I love Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And both of those have those unique moments where they walk through a doorway, and that doorway changes everything. When Dorothy goes, and, and I remember it, when you go from the black and white to the vivid color, and you're like, whoa, that's, that's interesting, that's amazing. When, when in Willy Wonka, they walk through this little tiny door and they're like, there's no way you're going to fit me through that door. And then they walk in and it's this beautiful factory of chocolate where you can eat everything. And it's, I, I always thought that was great as a kid. I probably not even should think about it. It would kick me into a diabetic coma. Uh, it would just, it would not be good. But there are those moments where they walk through this door and, and something amazing happens. Verses 11 and 12 are going to open up the doorway into the rest of this book. Peter's going to say, here, let me, let, me give you the, let me give you my thesis statement. Let me get you thinking through these lenses, thinking this way, so that as we interpret and understand the next passages, we do it in light of what he's saying in verse, uh, verses 12. Sorry, that was, uh, so it's the door into the house that God has built. So look what he says. In verse 11, he starts off, 
Can, can someone turn on the balcony lights so those in the balcony can have some lights? Thanks. It says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you. So Paul is, or Peter, excuse me, is looking and saying, okay, based on all that we've talked about, you've now been told by God that you have value. You've now been told by God that you have identity, that you have mercy from God. You are now told that not only does God love you, but Peter himself is affirming this love for the brethren. And he's saying that I love you as well. And the reason he's going to do that, because he's going to exhort them. He's going to say, based on the relationships that we have, based upon the fact that we have a relationship with God and we have a relationship with each other, Peter is going to make the strong appeal to the believers. And that's what the, this phrase, I beseech you, is. It's the early church way of starting a, what's called an exhortation or an emphatic urging to do something. So Peter says, I'm going to exhort you to live a certain way for the sake of the gospel. So that as you go forward, as you go in your life, you are to live this way, not just because I say so, but because the gospel is necessary and living this way helps the gospel. So as God gives us identity in verses 9 and 10, he places certain demands upon us. And that's going to be the next sections of the book. We may not like what we get into in the next of the book, and yet God is telling us, Peter is saying, I am beseeching you, I am begging you to do that. Um, and so as we talk, as we talk this passage here, uh, let's look at the next, he says, I beseech you at Strangers and pilgrims, thank you, because it will drive me nuts. I don't know what's going on. Experiencing technical difficulties, but we will be back shortly. So as we talk about it, Peter is saying, I beseech you, I am begging you as a, as a part of the building of Christ. I am begging you for the sake of the gospel that you live a certain way, a certain dynamic in your life. Look what he says. He says, I beseech you, and he identifies how he's addressing them. Now, he's already addressed them this way in chapter 1. He says, as strangers, as pilgrims. The present condition that these believers are under and are facing, it's not ideal. They're not living in a spot that's like, hey, this is great. We've covered that. We're, we're familiar with that background there. Many of us would probably look and say, Peter, just, just let them alone. Let, let me, their, their life is so difficult. It's so hard. They've been exiled probably from one area of the empire to another area. Things are, they're, they're being picked on. They're being maligned. They're being slandered. Just, just let them try and make it through life. And Peter says, I know it's difficult. I know that the situation where you're at, the, the, the country you're living in, it's not ideal. And yet I am going to exhort you in some areas in your, in your life. They've been displaced. They really have no sense of belonging. We've talked about the word stranger has this idea of a permanent resident alien. But remember, even in that culture, though they were permanently living in this area, they still not, did not have all the rights, did not have all the same abilities. They still were not from that area. There was always that distrust, always that look. The word pilgrim or exile or foreigner has somebody who's temporarily in the land. They may have been just there. They might be just passing through. But Peter is looking and saying, in relationship, here's how I'm asking you. I'm begging you. I'm beseeching you. That as individuals who can look and say, this world's not my home. I'm going to exhort you to live a certain way for a certain reason. 
He's going he's to talk and say, Peter is not using these terms to evoke empathy. He's not looking and saying, oh, feel bad for them. But he does it to remind us as believers that there is a dynamic that we belong elsewhere. And we have to remember that as we go through the next chapters. This is not home. This is temporary. Even though we are permanently here for this life, this is still temporary in the scope of eternity. So we belong elsewhere. We cannot fully participate, he's going to say, in our cultural situations. It's not our home. We're different. And this was not simply a demand by Peter or by God. This was also cultural. In the cultures, those who were foreigners, those who were exiles, those who were strangers in the land, were not, if you, you were transplanted in the area, you couldn't always participate in all of the worship. You couldn't uh, participate in the festivals in the areas where there was voting in some of the Greek areas. If you were from another area, you weren't allowed to vote. How novel of a concept. If you're not a resident, you can't vote. But anyway, um, there, was, there was that dynamic. So this was not just Peter looking and saying, while you're there, don't, t- don't partake. There was even a cultural dynamic that the people understood, you're not totally part of us, and you should not and will not take part in some of the things that we do. That was understood culturally there, but even more directly from God and from Peter saying, hey, this world, it's not home. The United States is not home. Sure, it's, it's our home, but this is, this is not where I'm going to reside for all of eternity, praise God. You know, we're, we're here for a short time. And so because we're here for a short time, that is a lens through which Peter is reminding these believers how to live. He's like, you have a celestial citizenship. You are, you are there. Because our citizenship is in heaven, we must see ourselves as foreigners, as exiles, We must view ourselves that way from a spiritual dynamic. Since we're temporary residents here, we should show a certain detachment from this world. Now that is easier stated than easier lived because we naturally gravitate to a lot of the things of this world. Our flesh longs for it. Our flesh desires for it. Our life should fit where we are headed, not where we're visiting. And to take that perspective will change some of the draws, some of the desires, some of the longings, because we're just here for a short time. And because I'm only here for a short time, Peter is saying, live in such a way that you can glorify and talk about the one who's there where you're headed, that you can highlight, that we can exalt the heavenly throne, the heavenly kingdom of which we are truly members. We take, in America, we, we have this idea of the melting pot, that America is this great melting pot, that all the nations come here and that we all assimilate into to one, great big, uh, one great big entity. But we talk about, when we do that, no diversity. We're not, you know, not going to be diverse. It's everyone is involved. And so we all want to become the same and we all want to take part Sometimes I, th- I fear that we take that, that great American concept of the melting pot and we transfer it into our spiritual life. That we look and we say, in our theology, we've become a melting pot. That we need to be so much like the world and so much like everything else around us because we're the foreigners, because we're the visitors, we're the strangers. We're the, let's become more like the culture 
so that we'll fit in, so that we'll have some, some uh, interaction with, so that we can all be part together. And we, we take that idea and we, we transfer it to our theology. That's not good. That's not what the scriptures call us to do. In fact, uh, recently I've been, I came across this idea of are we really a melting pot or are we in America more like a tossed salad where everything is in one bowl and it's all its own entities? And in some ways, forget the American part, as believers, that's how we should be interacting. We're part of America. We're part of this world system and yet the tomato doesn't become lettuce. We're our own entity. We, we live a distinct way. We are to have a distinct philosophy, a distinct viewpoint that, that Peter will talk about. Really, our foreignness, it's a consequence, and it's a good consequence, but it's a consequence of our faith. Because of chapter 1 and 2, because you've been redeemed, because you've been regenerated, because you are being built up into this house, there is the distinction between you and the world. There is a foreignness. Now you are a foreigner. Now you are in exile in this land. And so because of that, Peter says in verse 11, I beseech you as pilgrims and strangers, I want you to live this life. I want you to live an exemplary life in their foreign culture to provide an attractive alternative to the pagan lifestyle that was being lived all around them. He's saying, I want us to be billboards. I want us to be the advertisement. Pennsylvania is becoming very well known for its billboards and some of the billboards that are down in York and everybody loves them and laughs at them, but we need to be these billboards that are highlighting the majesty of our great God. That as God and, uh, as, excuse me, as the world looks at us, they see something different. They see something Unique. I couldn't find Say Something in your Apple Music library. I have no, thank you, Siri. I have no clue why you just decided to do that. I I didn't say anything bad yet. (laughs) Okay. Uh, What is, this is one of those messages. Wow, we're like 0 for 2 going right now. Microphone. Okay, what's Satan doing? Let's go. Let's keep going forward. All right. So what what does Peter say? Peter looks and says, I'm going to beg you, and I'm going to beg you in relationship to your livelihood as strangers, as pilgrims. I'm going to exhort us to live a certain way. So what does he say? He gives us a negative, and then he's going to give us a positive. But he's going to be driving at the same perspectives. He says, we are to abstain. The word literally means a holding back, a, a walking away from, an avoidance of something. And he says, we are to abstain ourselves, we are to hold ourselves back, we are to walk away from our fleshly lusts. Our fleshly lusts, they're still present for us as believers. He's talking to us as believers. He's saying, as fallen believers, this is still present. We still, even though we have the Spirit, we are not exempt from our fleshly desires. I know I'm not the only one who battles with this on a daily basis. That our, our desires, our longings are for one way and the Spirit is pushing us another. And this is not simply the idea of a sin of the body or a sexual sin. Because it says, you know, fleshly lusts in the King James. The, the word has the idea of a, a desire that comes from our flesh. Peter's talked about already social sins earlier in chapter uh, 2, verses 1 and 2. Where he talks about put away the malice and the, the hypocrisies and the guile and the envies. But he also talks about the sins of the body later on in chapter 4, down like verse uh, six, uh, 16, I think it is, 
Uh, I don't remember. That's not the right verse. But it's uh, in uh, verse 3, chapter 4, verse 3. He talks about some of the social sins, some of the sins of the body. So he's talking about our natural fleshly desires that, that drive us away from living spiritually, as we've been talking about in Sunday school with sanctification and the Holy Spirit in the last, the last two different times. So Peter is looking and saying, we need to work on abstaining, holding back our fleshly desires. These desires are those strong desires that are motivated by our selfishness. It's by what I want. It's by what I need, or I think I need, what I want. It's a battle of self-indulgence. It's me looking and saying, I don't care about what God's word says. I don't care about how it's going to impact others. It's me looking and saying, I'm going to indulge myself in my flesh. And what is the result is it makes me spiritually weak and it makes me ineffective. And so as we go, he talks about, look what he says. He says, abstain from these, uh, these uh, fleshly lusts which war against your soul. As they go, our soul is often seen as that which is relating to God. It is the spiritual dynamic of our body. He can also possibly be talking about just our body as a whole. And so Peter looks and says, we see this battle that is taking place between us, our soul, and our flesh. That, that battle that we've, we've been discussing and studying during our Sunday school hours. Our actions, look what, it's, it's an interesting word, the war against. They are our lusts, our desires, our flesh is mounting a full-out military campaign against our spiritual vitality, against our spiritual growth. And it's not passive. This is an active onslaught with the desire to destroy. The flesh wants nothing of the spirit. And so there is this battle that rages within us that as we look, Peter is saying, in your world, all the decadence, all of the things that you can take part, you need to, I need to work on withdrawing, abstaining, not indulging all of our fleshly desires. And so he's using that as one of the lenses to which we interpret the rest of this book. He says that yielding to this enemy means captivity. We don't talk about that much, but when we, we talk about having victory over sin, but to yield to sin means I become more and more captive to it. And the more I yield to it, the harder it gets to break out, the harder it gets to get away. It, it enslaves me. And so in my life, I cannot be consistently in trying to, to, yielding to my fleshly desires. I need to be walking away. I need to be putting that, putting that aside and working through that. It's interesting to me that I think some of us care more about our political freedom than we may even care about our spiritual freedom. We'll walk in sin, we'll walk in our flesh, we'll walk in our lusts, we'll walk in our desires and take that captivity over sin and say, there's just no way. But man, you, you even think about taking away one of my political freedoms, I'm gonna put all the energy and effort necessary into making sure that doesn't happen. But eh, my spiritual freedom, you know what, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven. And Peter's looking and saying, no, in our culture... In our society, we need to abstain. We need to walk away from that. So as I I think about it, are we consistently satisfying our desires in a manner that's contrary to God's word? We know God's word says this, we live this way. We choose not to while we choose to. Do we look and say our Christian faith must stand up? It must keep us from succumbing to the social pressures that are around us. 
to, to fill our lives with sinful, sinfulness, to fill our lives with greed, to fill our lives with the avarice, the, the, the materialism, the paganism, the, 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 the rank uh, lifestyles. And we, we find those battles. And P- Peter's looking and saying, work diligently on a continual basis. That word abstain, is, it's, it's a daily thing. It's a continual effort that when, our, when my flesh goes, goes at a military battle against my spirit, I need, to, I need to look and say, God, I need your help. I need victory. I need to be able to say no. I need to walk, and walk in the spirit so that I can produce the fruits and the works of the spirit. Are we denying ourselves the temporary pleasures of indulging our sinful passions? Because, why would we do that? Because those imp- impulses prevent us from living abundant spiritual lives. Too many times in our lives, the reason we don't have the abundance that God has for us, the the blessings, is because we're wallowing in the pits. We're seeking after our own fleshly desires, fulfilling those rather than walking in the Spirit. Are we living with that renewed mind? Are we living with a disciplined tongue? Are we living with a controlled body? As we go through our lives and we have to abstain, it's not, again, just the sexual sins. It's the way we respond to posts. It's the way we respond to our spouses, to our government, to non-believers. Are we living in a way that is a billboard for the one who dwells within us? Or do we look and say, eh, my way, I'll do what I want. And I live for the selfishness rather than for the spirit. We are not to yield to our unbridled desires. We are to live out our Christian faith. That is priority number one, and it must be as we go forward and interpret these scriptures. To look and say, it's not about what I want, what my passions want, what my desires want. When I go through the rest of this book, I have to first go to it as a Christian, looking at the faith, looking at what the Word of God says, and then what it says, that is how I am to to flesh this out, how how I am to live. You know, the, the Church of Asia Minor was not a pretty place at this point. There was uh, immense scrutiny, immense criticism. For the early church, they were told, people, people in their culture were saying, you're disloyal to our leader, you're disloyal to Caesar, that you don't care about the citizens, you're doing whatever you want, but you don't care about us as a whole. They, they were called cannibals because they would eat the flesh and drink the blood when they would celebrate communion. That's what, the, that's what the, the lies, the slander was. That they were incestuous because they had a love for their brothers and said, oh, we don't have love for our brothers. That's just gross. That's disgusting. And they would misinterpret. And so this slander would come upon them. This struggle would, would happen. Do, do you remember back after 9-11? Did you have an innate distrust at that moment for the next however long? Maybe some of you still battle with this that anybody who looked Middle Eastern, you did not trust them. You instantly thought they, they've got to be a terrorist. Why would they be here? What, what happened just in our own area when some of the refugees came over to the Gap? A whole bunch of people in our community decided they were going to go out with guns to all the gun rages and keep firing and firing and firing so that they knew we were here. We have this, this innate distrust for foreigners. That's what, Peter's, that's what Peter's playing on here. 
He's saying he understood that our natural human state was to have one of distrust, skepticism, concern. And that's what he looks at. He says, as foreigners, as exiles living in this land in Asia Minor, there's going to be distrust. The people around you are not, they're going to be skeptical. Now take us, take ourselves, and use that same terminology when it comes to the world and the church as believers. We are the foreigners. We are the exiles. And as we live in this world, there is a natural distrust. There's a natural skepticism for Christians because you're not living like the culture. You have different opinions than the, the, the radical culture because you have formulated ideas based upon an ancient text and now you're not going along with, you're a flat earther. You're not going along with science, you're going along with this ancient text. And you all of a sudden start feeling this idea that there's some slander for believers. That we as Christians will face if we're living the way we're supposed to be living in this world. So now here we are experiencing some of those dynamics. And Peter says, continue. Continue to abstain. To walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. And then he says, he goes on in the next verse, and he gives the more positive spin to it. He says, as foreigners, as exiles, abstain, but have your conversation, your lifestyle, honest among the Gentiles. In the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the slander that is happening, live attractively for the sake of the gospel. Your lifestyle, your conversation, mine, is to be virtuous. It is to be honorable. We are called, we are demanded to demonstrate a different quality of living in many different areas. And he says, he, look, look what he does. He says, you're to have a different perspective when it comes to your relationship to the government. I know you're all looking forward to that one next week. I get it. You know, I've heard more people like, I can't wait till this passage. Okay, but we are to have a different quality of living in regard to the government and the following our relationship to our masters, our workplace, our relationship to our family in chapter three, our relationship to our Christian family. He's, he's looking and saying our dynamic, how we are to, to live in this world is to have a, a better quality. Not to look and say, whew, look at us. We, we, we got it going on. You guys, you're just living in the dregs. It is to demonstrate the goodness, the moral virtue the, the holiness of our great God as we walk in our lives. And so he says, have your conversation this way, whereas they may speak against you as evildoers. Even if our culture accuses us of doing bad things, even if they are not able to see that we are behaving in a way that is goodly, that is moral, that is upright, we should live in such a way as to quiet those negative stereotypes. We should not be the ones fueling some of those stereotypes. We ought to live in a way that is upright, that is moral, that is pure, that has a perspective of not just being right, but Peter's gonna look and say, I want you to live in such a way that when those people who are speaking against you as evildoers, they see how you live, they see how you respond, they see your kindness, they see your love, they see your holiness, that they're going to notice that. 
that they're going to see that, that they may behold your good works, which when they behold that, they will glorify God in the day of visitation. Interestingly, in this passage, now I know in other passages, we'll, we'll talk about one in a second. In this direct passage, Peter does not summon us to a verbal campaign of self-defense. To go out there and tell them exactly why we're right and you're wrong. And when they come against me, it's, Peter says, hey, first things first. Make sure the life, make sure the light of our life is matching what we are called to be. Make sure that we are living the way the scriptures require us and tell us to live because that is powerful. It is a light in a darkened place. That verse nine, they'll see this marvelous, glorious light. So Peter looks and says, live in such a way. So he says, we are encouraged to take a positive approach to life here, that we are to demonstrate our good works. Now, when you hear the word good works, do, do we tend to have this idea? How do you view it? Do you view it as a good thing or a bad thing in theology? Are good works bad or good works good? It's, it's the wrong answer. Blue's like, well. Ironically, since the Reformation, we tend to look at because of justification by faith that everything, there's no good. You know, there, and, and there's no good, good things that good works is seen in a negative sense. We're not, we're not justified by the good things that we have done. It's by the grace of God. So when it comes to in, in the realm of salvation, you, you, absolutely. It's not by the good things that I do. So we, we see that dynamic. But what, what happens here is Peter is going to look and say, in a positive light, good works are good. We need to be showing good works, demonstrating good works. These good works, we look through passages, Ephesians 2, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. We're to be doing good things, which we were prepared to beforehand to walk in those things. Titus says the same thing uh, about good works. In all things, showing yourself as a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, who gave himself for us that we might redeem us, he might redeem us from all iniquity and prepare for us himself a what? A peculiar people, we've heard that before, zealous of good works. He's looking, and we know the good works don't save us. We understand that. Justification by faith through grace alone. But we are saved unto doing these good works. Uh, or Titus 3.8. It's a faithful saying. When, when Paul uses that in the pastoral epistles, this is a faithful saying. It is a strong, emphatic, like you need to pay attention. He uses it five different times in the pastorals. He says, this is, this is huge. Listen to it. And all these things I will say... Uh, and, all, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to do what? To maintain good works. We are to abstain from the flesh and maintain these good works. These things are good and profitable unto who? To men. It's unto men. It is, there is a profitability there. Peter goes through, you can look through all these verses where he's going to come back to doing good, doing good, having a good conversation, having a good, our lives, they need to be characterized by a good manner of life, how we live. It should be said in our lives that we are more, more, we live more moral lives than that of society. If we're not, if we've accepted the melting pot, if we're living just like the world, if we are living for all the things of the world, and something's not right. 
There's no light. Our light is being diminished. It is being hidden under a bushel that they can't see it because we've chosen to live in darkness rather than shine our glorious light before people. And what does he say? He says, you do this so that they shall behold thy good works. The, the, the good works here, the observation is to watch over a long period of time. It's not just, okay, I did one nice thing. I said hi to my neighbor and I performed a good work. That's not, it's not what it's talking about. We are t- being continually observed, constantly watched, and we should continue to m- demonstrate that God is at work, demonstrating love, demonstrating kindness to mankind, to our culture. This passage is following up. Verses 9 and 10 are highlighting what we as a body, as believers, are doing. Verses 11 and 12 then say, okay, as a body, as we're being built up, we're not just built up for ourselves. We are built up to be a glorious, marvelous light to those who are outside of our walls, that are outside of our fellowship. He's looking and saying that it is important for us to live righteously in our world. A good reputation was honestly, when you go through the New Testament, you can look through passages like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, where it talks about an aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as you were instructed, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one, so that you may walk properly. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, give none offense, neither to Jews nor to Gentiles, nor to the church of God. So it was giving no offense. It was living, walking uprightly, not just to the church body, but to those who are without. Colossians chapter 4, verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. We are told, 1 Timothy chapter 3. To pastors, we are told, moreover, I must have, he must have a good reputation, a good report to them that are without. The, the society needs to know what, what my character is. They need to understand that. We have a dynamic in the New Testament that the New Testament writers looked and said, hey, Our reputation in our community is important. It is vital. That is a principle then that has to carry over how we interpret, how we make plans, how we do some of the other passages that are to follow. We look and we say, we are to be an advertisement to the excellent attributes of our great God. And we do that so that they may behold, as it says, your good works, and glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, the day of visitation, some will say that it's, it's God's judgment and that the believer's testimony will leave the unsaved without excuse, that they'll be able to look at my life, and because they looked at my life, they, were, they should have gotten saved. I, I have an issue with that because, honestly, the problem is people aren't condemned to hell because they reject my lifestyle. Now, my lifestyle can add to or detract from someone's desire to hear the gospel and accept the gospel, but that's not why a person is condemned to hell. I think it it has this idea of the day of salvation, that that individual is, it's when a critic comes to Christ, that when that person who is slandering, when that person who is an evildoer, when that person who, who looks at Christianity and says, want no part, nothing to do with it, but I just don't get it, but my neighbor is the nicest person ever. They're so kind, they're so respectful, they have such a love and a passion isn't it very similar, to, excuse me, to Matthew chapter 5, verse 16? Let your light, this is Jesus Christ, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, right? Not, not that they may hear your avid testimony, although the Bible calls us to that. We'll talk about that in a second. But that they may see your good works and glorify the Father which is in heaven. 
There is no way around the fact in the New Testament that our lifestyle adds to evangelism. I am not advocating lifestyle evangelism. Do not send me emails. I will not open them. He advocated lifestyle evangelism. Lifestyle, our lifestyle is an evangelistic tool. Peter says that they can see how you're living morally, how you are living uprightly, and that as you do that, there is an attractiveness to the gospel. That's not the end. We need to share the gospel in its entirety. Get that. We'll get there. Peter gets there later on. Chapter 3, verse 15, 16. He'll get there. But our lives, our choices to abstain and to maintain a holiness has impact in our community. We as believers have to follow this. Now, I'm going to give you a warning. I'm going to make some blasphemous statements here for a few minutes. They're not going to be. But they could be construed that way. Okay? When we look at this passage, as we sum it up, what is, what is Peter driving us to? What is, he, what is he thinking about when we look and we say, abstain from fleshly, but have your conversation this way so that they may glorify God. So summary thoughts. Christianity is more than a call to abstain from a certain list of activities. There is a whole bunch throughout Scripture. Put this off. Don't do this. Don't do this. Absolutely. But that is not the end all of our walk with God. We are called to live lives that model mature, honorable conduct, to live a glorious life, a happy, a joyful life, to live in such a way that we look and we say, God is honorable, and we want to live that way. We, another thought, good works are not simply things done at church for believers, okay? Good works are not simply things done at church for believers. Notice, remember the context, He's looking and saying that those unbelievers, the ones who are slandering, the ones who are evildoers, I'm hoping that that's not describing us. That's, that's describing the unbelievers. He says that as they view you over a long period of time, that there is that observation. He says it must be allowed to take place in ourselves, in our situations as believers. We are not simply doing these things just good. Now, there are good works in the church. There is service to the believers. There is service doing some of the different dynamics. But if all my good works only focus here and the world never sees my good works, there's a problem. My neighbors, my friends who are outside of the church need to see my moral lifestyle. They need to see me upholding the ways that God has lived and called me to live. They need to see how I refrain from certain dynamics in my life. It should be consistent. It should be intentional. Let your good works shine before them. It could be going for your, with your coworkers to coffee. Well, I don't want to be seen with the, you know, the unsaved co No, you need to go. Matthew, Jesus, they go. They have a party with a whole bunch of unsaved people. Why? So that they can see. They, they can see the goodness. It could be game nights with your neighbors. It could be grill outs. It could be going to, to work parties. You say, well, I don't want to go to the work party because there's drinking there. You be wise. You be a light. You be honest and upright in that. 
you look and say, well, maybe I could get involved in a rec league, get involved, you know, some of you, some of you senior saints love playing pickleball, play pickleball with the other senior saints, seniors who need, the, need Jesus Christ, get involved in a volleyball league, in a basketball, do something. You're in youth sports, you have your kids in youth sports, volunteer, don't just like sit on the sideline, volunteer so you can start rubbing shoulders with other unsaved individuals so that you can have the interaction, the dynamic to be able to talk with them. Maybe it's yard cleanup season and you see your neighbors who are out there cleaning up and you're like, I really don't feel like sweating right now. I don't want to do that. And so it, maybe that's time. Maybe it's going to a coworker's funeral. It's looking for those opportunities as believers to let our light shine to those who are without. Because good works are not just the things done here. Those are important. They are necessary. We need to build up. He talks about nine and 10, building up the body, but now looking and showing our good works outside. God is not the only one for whom we do good things. That's the, I know that one's probably going to get me the emails this week. Yes, God is the one who we, we seek to glorify. He is my audience of one. But this passage tells me, and others throughout the New Testament, that some of these good works are being observed, and I do them so that others can see the goodness, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, we're watching and we're concerned. We know that God is doing that of how we live. The spirit wars against the flesh. We know that it's a spiritual dynamic. We know that God sees it. But the passages highlight there is a dynamic where God is interested and yet mankind observes and we do some of these things for the sake of the gospel. We live in our community uprightly for the sake of the gospel. And last point, withdrawing from society is not the answer. We've done that too often. We like our holy huddles. And in the process, our communities drift further and further away from God. Our neighbors get further and further away from hearing the gospel. Withdrawal was not the option. The early church did not retreat. These, the church in Asia Minor did not retreat. They rather learned to address the issues in the world by countercultural living, by knowing the message of the word of God and by presenting that. The knowledge that they do not belong does not lead them to withdrawal, but rather as strangers and exiles uh, that we endeavor not to take our lifestyles from culture, but from our home. The idea, we live godly lives after our heavenly father, after Jesus Christ, we manifest those good virtues of the scripture in our world for the sake of the gospel. And look, look what happens. They will glorify God. They will be saved. Well, what about the gospel? What, what happens? Look in verse, verse, uh, th- chapter 3, verse 13, and we'll wrap up here. Peter's going to say, okay, you live this way, in relationship to the government, in relationship to uh, your masters, in relationship in the family home. And he says, verse 13 of chapter 3, And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? But, and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are you, and don't be afraid of the terror, neither be troubled, but you set apart the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer, there's there's where you're going to get to the gospel, Give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. He looks and says, the result will be you will have the opportunity at some point 
to be sharing the gospel, to be giving a defense of your faith. We are to live exceptional lives of love and holiness in our society so that this world will see a radical difference, so that they will know that there is something unique and something different about us that will give us the opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's abstain from the flesh and let's maintain a good, moral, godly reputation as our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers observe Jesus in the flesh. We are the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. We are the body of Christ. We are to go out in this world and to live, to love, and to share the gospel with everyone we see. Let's take those opportunities. Father, we thank you that for many of us here, we know what you've done for us. And even as we come to communion in just a few moments here, we're able to reflect on your goodness and your love to us. So Lord, help us to demonstrate that love. Help us to show that kindness that you so graciously demonstrated to us, Lord. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.